Well, good morning, and again, let me say to you, Merry Christmas. Looking forward to all that today and tomorrow bring and to worship the Lord together. If you're a guest here, if you're visiting from out of town, welcome. So glad you're here, hopefully enjoying time with uh, family and loved ones. And if you are from here and you don't have a church home, I, maybe you'll consider making Coleman First Baptist your church home. It might be just what you're looking for. We'd love to have you. So Friday night, my son, who is 12, asked me, so dad, are you preaching on Sunday about the baby Jesus in a manger? And I was like, well, actually, yeah, I mean, indirectly, I'm in this series called The Family Tree of Jesus, and I'm giving all the historical underpinnings and backstory of what happened that night in Bethlehem by looking each week at a different character from the genealogy that leads to Jesus. And he replied, so nope. <laughs> so I thought by way of introduction, and apparently in my defense, uh, I thought I would share for anyone who's wondering the same thing, uh, what about that little baby born in Bethlehem? What about that baby boy in Bethlehem? I just want to say that today I, I am, in fact, preaching on that little baby boy born in Bethlehem. His name is Obed. And he has everything to do with Christmas. Uh, you'll find him. Look in the genealogy of Jesus. So we've been in this series, The Family Tree of Jesus. The idea here is in the genealogy of Jesus given in Matthew, it tells us about the begats, right? Abraham had Isaac, and Isaac had Jacob, and Jacob had Judah, and Judah had Perez, and Hezron, and... Uh, and anyway, it goes on from there, right? Uh, and in that family tree, it tells us all about uh, these that are, uh, have come before. And, and look at verse 5. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Ah, oh, we looked at Rahab. So we've looked at Judah, and we looked at Rahab. And last week, we looked at Ruth. These are outsiders. Rahab had a crazy background. Judah, Judah had a, 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 an attempted, uh, well, human trafficking of his brother Joseph. And the point we've been saying is, Matthew, look, if if this was our family tree, we might shy away from some of these bad apples. But not Matthew. It's as if he leans in. Why? It's, it's like he's saying, look, every time you can read Matthew 1 over and over, it gets to Jesus. It gets to that baby born in Bethlehem. Why? Because Matthew's saying Jesus is not given to us to be some trophy pedigree of genealogy. Jesus is given to be a savior for sinners. And that's what you have there in Matthew 1. you got a list of human beings who are, guess what, sinners. And some of them do some really noble things. And when they uh, uh, do things that are noble, it only further points us to the true and ultimate coming King Jesus. So that's why, so we, we've looked at uh, uh, Boaz, uh, uh, Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. Last week we looked at Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David the king. This family is who gets us in Bethlehem, and Bethlehem, of course, ultimately will get us to Jesus. I'm doing this series because I want us to behold the meaning and wonder of the birth of Jesus. Jesus didn't just appear out of nowhere. He didn't appear out of the blue. He came out of the blueprint. You know, your Bible here has got an Old Testament and a New Testament. Alec Matier uh, once said, uh, it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. What he was saying was, listen, Jesus just didn't appear. If, if, you, uh, if you think of the Old Testament and New Testament in your Bible, uh, the time before Jesus and the time describing after Jesus came as two acts in a two-act play, or perhaps a long movie with an in 
in intermission. He's saying, look, if you, if you leave after the, just the first act, if you, if you skip out at, at, at the intermission and you leave, you'll always be wondering. If you leave after just the Old Testament, you'll always be left wondering, I wonder how it ends. I wonder what happens next. It ends obviously on a, on a cliffhanger in Malachi. What, what's going to happen? On the other hand, he says, if you just start with the New Testament and you ignore the Old Testament, you're like that person in the movie who comes in after the intermission and you'll spend the whole movie going, now who is he? What are they doing? How did they get here? And that's what this series is aiming to do. So last week we looked at Ruth, and today we're going to zoom in on the rest of the book of Ruth, specifically on this man named Boaz and the little baby born in Bethlehem, their little Obed. So, Boaz. Uh, let's find him in the Bible. The best way to find uh, Boaz is to go through Sneed. <laughs> North Alabama joke. Uh, let's turn to Ruth, and I'll give you the outline. If you turn in your Bibles to Ruth, while you're turning in your Bibles to the book of Ruth, I'll give you the outline here. We're going to look at the life of Boaz behind the scenes. I'm calling it behind the scenes, bold moves, and a better Boaz. There's your outline. There's where we're going. Behind the scenes, we'll look at starting in Ruth uh, around chapter 2. Behind the scenes, bold moves, and a better Boaz. Now, let's set the scene here. Behind the scenes. We're in the period of the Bible known as the Judges. This was not a good time in the history of Israel. In the time of the Judges, uh, well, this is the last verse of Judges. As Ruth begins, let me show you the very last verse in the book that comes before Ruth, the book of Judges. It says, yeah, in those days there was no king in Israel. They felt like they had no representative of God to enforce God's law, and so everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And there you have it, a dark time. If you were here last week or if you know the story of Ruth, you know the story opens with a a darkness. A woman named Naomi has had tragedy after tragedy. There's a famine, so she's forced to leave her ancestral home of Bethlehem with her husband and two boys. They go to the pagan land of Moab, and while there, her husband Elimelech dies. The boys take Moabite wives, and then later, both of those sons die. Naomi, now bitter and empty, begins the journey home to Bethlehem. One daughter, Orpah, leaves, but the other, Ruth, clings to her and comes to Bethlehem with her. So they find themselves, Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, back in Bethlehem with no prospects, no hope, no future. And yet, Ruth does not wallow in self-pity. She gets busy doing what she can. Maybe there's, a, there's probably a sermon right there. Don't wallow in self-pity when the darkness comes. Get busy doing what you can. At the end of chapter 1 in Ruth tells us it's time for the barley harvest. And that's an important detail. See, God's law is provided for this thing called gleaning to care for the poorest of the poor. Harvesters weren't allowed to go back over their fields a second time. They, they weren't allowed to harvest all the, all the grain all the way up to the edges of the field. Instead, they had to intentionally leave just a little bit so the poorest of the poor could go and glean. And if they were willing to work for food, they could do just that. Uh, so Ruth decides she's going to do that. This is the equivalent of, uh, of uh, look at verse 2. This is the equivalent of, of setting out one morning. She says, uh, uh, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain. After him in whose sight I shall find favor. And Naomi blessed her work, go my daughter. This would be the equivalent of saying to her mother-in-law, listen, I'm, I'm going to go down to a big city today. I'm going to drive down to Birmingham and I am going to go through every trash can and every sidewalk and I'm going to collect Coke cans. 
And at the end of the day, if I can get a big old pile of Coke cans, maybe I can get five cents or 10 cents a can. I'll turn them in and we'll just see, we'll just see if I can find some favor. I don't know how it'll turn out. We'll see how we do today. A lot could go wrong. People, if I go down there to do that, people might yell, hey, 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 we don't, we don't allow that kind of thing here. Or, or maybe I'll be on somebody else's turf. Hey, this is my area. I do the gleaning here, they might say to Ruth. Or uh, I collect these cans. What if the merchants yell, hey, you can't do that around here. A lot could go wrong. Or, or what, if I, what if I get to a field and they say to me, hey, we don't allow that gleaning around here. They would be breaking God's law. I mean, to not allow gleaning would be breaking God's law, to which they'll say, yeah, and whose king is going to enforce that? That's the point. There is no king in Israel. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. And so if they decide they want to go back over a second time, a third time, and go all the way to the margins, and there won't be any gleanings left, then they could do that. Ruth, so much could go wrong, but she sets off. And in verse 3, the writer uses some delicious irony. He's already introduced this to someone in, uh, earlier in this chapter. And in verse 3, so she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened. Y'all, it just happened, wink, that she had come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. You'll need to remember that detail later. It's like the writer saying with a wink, she just happened to come to the one field in all of Judah that belonged to Bethlehem's most eligible bachelor. It just happened. The big city journalist just happened to get stuck in a small town where the annual Christmas festival was in danger of being canceled. The local handyman happened to be the town's charming Mr. Right. You're like, I've seen this movie somewhere. I think it's every movie. The difference, of course, in Hallmark movies is that it's plot of made up, but this is a fact of history. Now, as a reader, we, we kind of sense this is all going to work out, but the theological term for this is God's providence. God's providence. God's providence is his continued involvement in creation. Theologians tell us that God's providence means God is continually involved in with created, all created things in such a way that he, one, keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. Two, cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. And three, directs them to fulfill his purposes. That is a mouthful. What it means is this, God is guiding even when we can't always see what he's up to, make no mistake, God is at work. In your life right now, God is at work. He's guiding. Now, and this in no way contradicts the free choice of Ruth and Boaz. Ruth is free to choose any field she wants. Boaz is working the field. He's always worked. It's his family's land. And yet, it's like the writer is saying, do you think this was just dumb luck? No. Do you think this was chance? Come on. Was this fate? No, this is God at work behind the scenes. Oh, there happens to be a famine. Elimelech happens to go to Moab. Ruth happens to fall in love with one of the sons and happens to come back then with Naomi when that man dies. And now Ruth, uh, 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 with no hope and no prospects, <laughs> comes into the Bethlehem's most eligible bachelor's field. That's why I'm calling this behind the scenes. And the application is simple. God is always at work around you. Hey, don't give up on that. Don't give up. Think about your life right now. You're not here by accident. 
Nothing that has happened to you in 2023, for some of you, this has been a great year of blessing. This has been one for the record books. For others of you, 2023 has been downright tough. But here's what I know. God wasn't surprised by your 2023, was he? God has never shown up late at an accident trying to get up to speed from the EMT. Now, hey, what happened here? God's never caught off guard. God didn't bring, so why did then God bring you through 2023? I'll tell you this, God didn't bring you this far to abandon you here. He didn't bring you this far to abandon you now. God is always at work. Well, anyway, Boaz happens <laughs> to head out from Bethlehem City, and he goes out into the county where the harvest is happening, and he greets the workers. And behold, verse 4, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. This is a common greeting. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she's the young Moabite woman. You know, we all heard, we all heard about that. Came back with Naomi uh, from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Hard worker. She's not only faithful and loyal, she's a hard worker. I was visiting somebody a couple weeks ago, and this fellow was talking about how this, this man, we were there visiting and praying with him. He was one of the hardest working old fellas he ever met. And he talked about what it was like to grow up with him. And he said, well, we'd go out working on the farm. We'd finally take a rest. And while we were resting, he'd say, well, fellas, let's go ahead and unload this truck here while we're resting. <laughs> you know, since we're on a rest, this way we can rest and unload that there truck. That kind of reminds me of, of someone Ruth would appreciate. Ruth was hardworking. And everyone had been talking about that poor, poor Naomi. You know, it said that all the women were, to, to, oh, is, can this be you, Naomi? When you, you went away so full, you've come back empty. Did you hear? Did you hear Naomi's back? Well, this hardworking Ruth has caught the eye of Boaz. And Boaz speaks to her and basically says, hey, uh, stay in my field. Don't, don't reap anywhere else. Look at verse 8. Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Uh, stay here in this field. In other words, there were other women that were doing the same thing that were gleaning. He says, you stay close. In verse 9, let your, eye, let your eyes be on the field they are reaping. That's an old-fashioned way of saying, don't, don't, don't look for other fields. Don't, don't go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn? I love that. I can just imagine what Boaz told his workers. Hey, fellas, fellas, come here. Yeah, boss. You see that new girl out there? Yeah. Here's the deal. She's going to work here in this field. And uh, you're going to treat her with kindness. And y'all are going to be gentlemen. And when she sits down to drink water, you go ahead and draw her some water too. And uh, you share it just like it's one of the other workers here. And if you touch her, I got a big field. They will not find your body. <laughs> you, 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 right? Man, don't you love Boaz here? My point is, he's a gentleman. And because he's a gentleman, he makes the guys around him better. Look at his kindness. Verse 10, she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? She's blown away by this kind treatment. But Boaz says, we've heard about your faith. We've heard, Boaz answered her, all that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. Why did you do that? The next verse, he says, but it's the Lord. You chose 
God and nothing, plus all this, instead of all this earthly hope without God. You would rather have God with what looks like no earthly good circumstances than better circumstances with no God. We heard about that. That, that, that. that did something to us. In the time of the judges when it's dark, that inspired us. The Lord repay you for what you've done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. She responds, I've found favor in your eyes, my Lord. You've comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I'm not one of your servants. And then the next verses describe he gives food right off his table, sends her home with way more than she earned. And the, the reader, by the end of chapter two, you, you think, whoa, love is in the air, right? What's going to happen? Uh, just, one, just a brief side note. I hope you'll allow me this briefest of side notes. Why is Boaz such a good guy? I mean, he's just stellar. In the book of Ruth, he comes across as just knight in shining armor kind of good. How did he get that way? Well, why are most good guys good guys? Answer, because of their mamas. I'm only half joking. Who was Boaz's mama? Mama, I'll put mama in quotes because you know that in the Bible, the genealogy, you do know that they skip generations a lot of times. Anybody who comes after you would be considered your son or your daughter. And so in this case, they say, uh, 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 do, you, do you remember who Boaz's mama was? Go back to verse 5 if you need a little help of Matthew. Salmon, the father of Boaz, by whose mama? Or could be grandmama, or could be great-grandmama. Rahab. Now, have any of you stopped to imagine growing up with Rahab as, your, for argument's sake, let's say grandma. Grandma Rahab. We don't know exactly how many years from the fall of Jericho to this scene in Ruth. So Rahab could have been grandma, great-grandma. But, but imagine Boaz growing up hearing those stories of the faithfulness of God. Oh, tell it again, Rahab. Tell it again, grandma. Tell it again. Okay, well, your grandma sent those spies on a wild goose chase. <laughs> and they're laughing. They can't believe it. Oh, tell about the battle. Well, okay, come here, my little Boaz. Come here, little Bobo. <laughs> come here. Well, you know I tied that scarlet cord. Bring me that scarlet cord. They still kept it, you know. I tied that scarlet cord out the window, and sure enough, your grandpa's army came marching around seven times. And then when they blasted that trumpet, the walls came down, and we were spared. We were saved, and the kids are just cheering, and they love that part. And God took good care of me. When I got back to Israel, I was worried I would never have a family of my own because of my, well, background. But the women in Israel told me not to worry because there's plenty of fish in the sea. And you know what? There are. And I caught me a salmon. <laughs> And Grandpa Salmon's like, it's funny every time, Grandma Ray Ray. It still lands. That joke still lands. My, my point is, Boaz grew up hearing Grandma over and over tell the grandkids, you can't trust God. You need to thank God if you've got a mama or a grandma when you grew up that told you you can trust God. You need to thank God what a gift that is. And for some of you, you are that gift. You are Grandma Rahab to the next generation or the next generation. It was a side note. It's now over. Thank you for allowing me that side note. It was just to get in that salmon line. <clears throat> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. The point was the godly grandmother. 
Well, after that, Ruth goes home excitedly, tells Naomi all that's happened, and Naomi's listening to all this, and Naomi says, uh, say that again, whose field? She says, Boaz. Naomi says, oh, Boaz. Boaz is a nice boy. <laughs> you, you stay in Boaz's field. And then she throws in this little line that unfortunately we need a little more history to understand. Verse 20, she drops this in. Skip down to chapter 2, verse 20. Naomi also said to her, the man's a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. We need a little history. Uh, we got to talk about what is this redeemer, or as the King James calls him, this kinsman redeemer. What is a kinsman redeemer? Let's start with what we know. To redeem simply means to buy back. The idea of a kinsman redeemer means to buy back centering around two things. They're very important in the Old Testament, land and family. So much of the Torah, the law, centers around land and family. Here's the deal. God's plan, when they came into the promised land, out of Egypt, into the promised land in the Old Testament, was for the people to be fruitful. The land was to be fruitful for the 12 tribes of Israel, for their families to flourish, and ultimately for all the nations to be blessed through them. But for lots of reasons, land could be lost, usually because of dire circumstances it was sold off, and family names could die out. So baked into the law is this provision, this idea that land could be bought back and kept within the family. People within the family had a right to buy back any land that was lost. They could redeem it. They had to be related, so that's why a kinsman redeemer could buy it back. You can find this if, for your homework. I'll give you Leviticus 25, uh, uh, verses 24 and 25. Here's some of the law of God. And in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. Does that make sense? So that's like the right uh, of, of redemption. Uh, I leave for your homework. I won't put it up here. Deuteronomy 25 talks about the same concept, only with family. These wives brought into the families, the idea being that any children from that marriage would carry the name of the deceased husband, thus the family name could go on. Now, it just so happens, see, that Boaz is just such a kinsman redeemer. But the reader is left with some suspense. That doesn't mean he'll want to redeem her, or, or even if he can. So we keep reading. Chapter one, uh, ends, uh, chapter 1 ends with the beginning of the barley harvest. Chapter 2, notice what it says. It's the end of the barley harvest. So Ruth kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Why is that important? It moves the plot along. It heightens uh, the uh, uncertainty. What's happened? We've, we've got Boaz. We've got Ruth. Feels like love's in the air. But now, Y'all, the harvest time is coming to an end. The clock is ticking. Like a lot of dating relationships, there's a lot of waiting, uncertainty. Feels like we had a nice time at dinner, she thinks. I wonder if he'll call. Will there be a second date? Are we like friends? More than friends? <laughs> and now this whole barley harvest thing, this is a temp job, you understand? The clock is ticking. We're down to days, now hours. So what happens next? I'm calling bold move. Behind the scenes, bold move. In chapter 3, time running out, Naomi hatches a bold plan. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you, you, you were? See, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. This is kind of the end of harvest uh, uh, processing. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself. 
Put on your cloak. So in other words, get, get all dolled up, but do, do it secretly. Put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, right? Because it's going to be pitch black. I mean, all these men presumably sleeping in this big barn. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. You're going to go and throw off his covers. That's why I had you go and find out exactly where he's sleeping. You don't want to uncover the wrong feet. Go to, right? Go down there and uncover, lie down. And he'll tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. Now, there's no other way to say this. I don't want to belabor the point. This is a, (laughs) to put it mildly, this is a bold plan. It is a risky plan. Let me simply say this. No father would ever endorse this plan for his daughter as a plan of dating. But that's the point, isn't it? She didn't have a daddy in Israel. Desperate times call for desperate measures. And yes, a lot could go wrong. And the plan all hinges on one thing. It hinges on Boaz's reaction to her. So let's see what happens. She went down. Because the plan is, she's there. She's in this position of, of vulnerability and and. and, 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 and she, she went down to the threshing floor and, and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. You see that in verse 6? And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain and she came softly, uncovered his feet, lay down. And at midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. We know who that is, but of course he didn't. He said, who are you? And she answered, I'm Ruth, your servant. Maybe there was a long pause. What was Naomi's instructions? From there, he'll tell you what to do. And she just kind of goes off script and proposes marriage to him. <laughs> Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Ruth proposes marriage. You see the risk in this. This this spread your servant, uh, spread your wings, right? In other words, bring me into your household and family. She's proposing marriage. She, there's great risk. She staked everything. I can't stress this enough. She staked everything on Boaz's reaction to her. So much could go wrong. He could mock this request. He could say, you're an outsider, a foreigner from Moab. How dare you? He could reject her. He could humiliate her. He could bring her up on charges like uh, happened with Joseph and Potiphar's wife, like Potiphar's wife did to Joseph. Worst of all, he, he could take advantage of her. What power did she have? Everything depends on his reaction. She's powerless at his mercy. And what does he do, verse 10? He prays for her. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You've made this last kindness greater than the first and that you did not... You have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I, I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. And everyone is ready to put all this on social media. He said yes. You know? <laughs> and that leads to the final section I'm calling a, a better Boaz. A better Boaz. Take the scene with Ruth. This is an incredible love story, but it's so much more. It's meant to point us to someone. I think we're supposed to read this as New Testament Christians. We read the book of Ruth and we think, ah, this fellow Boaz reminds me of someone. (laughs) This story, doesn't it point us to the greatest romance of all, Christ and his church? Boaz is not just fulfilling the law. No, this is love. Just like Boaz could have rejected Ruth's proposal of marriage. No, instead he loves her 
Ruth is like the church, the bride of Jesus. The Bible calls the church the bride of Christ. The church comes uh, to Jesus just as Ruth comes to Boaz in some ways and asks, will you redeem me? Now, who will do all the work, Boaz? Charles Spurgeon calls Jesus our glorious Boaz because of all the parallels. We come to the Lord Jesus, we ask him for redemption, and just like Boaz, he could have rejected the church. Jesus could have rejected the church. Jesus could have said to each one of us, no, I'm sorry, I've forgiven you too many times. No, no, no. No, I'm sorry, it's a no. But Boaz says yes. Jesus says yes. You say, why would he do that? He's not obligated. He doesn't owe us anything. Boaz didn't owe Ruth anything. That's right, that's grace. It's love. It's mercy. Jesus treats us, you might say, like Boaz treats Ruth in this scene. And so the message today is simple. If you don't know Jesus, you need to know him today. You need to become a Christian if you're not. And you do that by confessing your sin to Jesus, asking him to redeem you. I mean, that was the thrust of what Ruth was saying. Spread, that, spread those wings over me. Let me come under your household in your name. And that's what a person says to Jesus. Redeem me. Buy me back. Boaz points to the ultimate Boaz, Jesus Christ. That's why I'm calling it a better Boaz. Well, that's it, right? Happily ever after. The lovers fall in love. The small Hallmark Christmas tree farm is saved and all that, right? Not so fast. Every good love story needs some drama, right? Romeo and Juliet can't get together because of families. What's the obstacle here? Verse 12 continues. We'll finish with this. Now it is true that I am a redeemer. But he's like, yes, but yet, problem, there is a redeemer nearer than I. (gasps) Remember these laws of redemption were very complex because this involves land and family, and there is a redeemer who actually gets first dibs on the redemption. So he's got first shot at fulfilling the role of this kinsman redeemer, and he can buy your family's property and absorb you into his family. So he says, it's not a good idea for you to stay the night, but it's an even worse idea to send you out alone. So you stay here, I'll deal with this in the morning. He says, remain tonight and in the morning. If he'll redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Sure enough, the next morning, verse one of chapter four, now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there and behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. There it is, that providence. Oh, look, it just so happened that just the man came to the city gates where they conducted business, the exact man that Boaz needs to speak to. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. Then he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. These guys are on their way to work, but the elders of the city conducted uh, like an Italian piazza, right? The, 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 the sort of the court square of their town was the city gates. And Boaz must have had some influence to be able to get the quorum he needed to conduct this business. And then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi lays out all the facts. Naomi, who had come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. Now the reader's reading this going, hey, what, what, whoa, whoa, what are, you, what are you doing, Boaz? Listen, you're just laying out the, just take Ruth to, just, just, just elope, right? What? No, no, don't do that. Why you got to be such a rule follower, Boaz? So I thought I would tell you of it and say, and you're like, oh, why is he such a good guy? <laughs> Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you'll not, tell me that I may know, for there's no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. In other words, what's it going to be? The fateful moment. You're risking everything by coming under the law like this, Boaz, you're, you're, listen, there's no king in Israel. Everybody does what's right in their own eyes. Why are you having to do this in such a public way? 
so, so above board and in line with the law of God. And sure enough, a lot of times people feel this way. When you do everything above board and you do it right, what happens? <laughs> Turns out terrible. And the guy said, okay, I'll redeem it. Like, no, why did I follow the rules? Right? But Boaz is not done. He said, remember, there's two parts to this, land and family. You want the land to increase your assets, but it comes with family obligation. Then Boaz said, hey, don't forget, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to per- per- perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, having thought about that, <laughs> it's not just about the land, it's not just about, you know, you know what, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Uh, apparently he was concerned any son born to him and Ruth would share in the inheritance he had already planned to make a name for his own children. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. I do think it's worth noting we're not even given this fellow's name. Let this be a lesson to all those who try to make a name for themselves by tooting their own horn. In the end, he's forgotten. Well, Boaz, now we can rejoice. I can't redeem it. And then Boaz said to all the elders of the people, your witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech and all that belong to Kilion and to Malin, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malin, I have brought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses to this day. This is all sort of their legal jargon to make it official. They all agree we're witnesses. Boaz took Ruth to be his wife. There's much rejoicing. And if I imagine this were a movie, we'd all be clapping and as the credits were rolling and people are exiting the theater they sort of pause like they do sometimes and give you a little bonus footage and they pause and zoom in it says nine months later oh would you look at that little bundle look at verse 13 so Boaz took Ruth she became his wife he went into her and the Lord gave her conception she bore a son and then grandma holds that little baby verse 16 then Naomi took the child laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. There you have it. A little baby born in Bethlehem named Obed. (laughs) You think, well, what's so significant about that? Remember, Judges ends by saying there is no king. Then it zooms in on this hopeless little ordinary family in Bethlehem. And Ruth ends by saying the name of the one who is to be the penultimate greatest Israelite king, David. And it all happened in the town of David, Bethlehem. And that brings us to the little town of Bethlehem where David, who had Solomon, who had Rehoboam, who had a long list of kings, who eventually gets to Jacob and Mathen, who's the husband of Joseph, uh, who was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, who was the mother of Jesus, born in a baby, born in a manger, born in Bethlehem, born to save a people walking in darkness. They've seen a great light. The musicians are going to come and lead us in a time of response and invitation. I want everybody to see how this genealogy points us straight to King Jesus. Boaz, don't you see? Boaz simply points us to a true and better kinsman redeemer. Did you consider all the parallels? To be a kinsman redeemer meant he had to follow the law. That's why Boaz did everything by the book. That's why he followed the law. To be a kinsman redeemer, Boaz had to come under the law. Doesn't Galatians tell us that when Jesus was born, he was born as one under the law? Didn't Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount, he didn't come to abolish the law, he came to what? To fulfill it. 
To be a kinsman redeemer, he had to come under the law. To be a kinsman redeemer, he had to be a, well, kinsman. He had to be a relative. He couldn't be completely from the outside and redeem. And doesn't the Bible tell us that Jesus came, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus became like us in every way except one. He was tempted just like us. Hebrews tells us he was tempted just like us, except he never sinned. He was truly our kinsman. And to be a redeemer, Boaz, of course, had to be debt-free himself, didn't he? He couldn't have his land out there in hock. He had himself to be debt-free, and he had to be willing to pay that price to redeem. Was our Lord Jesus himself debt-free? You bet. He was without sin. He was right with God. But he had to be willing to sacrifice that for us and our salvation. The Bible says it this way. God demonstrates his own love toward us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And there is where Boaz can only be a pointer to the great kinsman redeemer. Boaz, it cost a great amount of money. But with Jesus to redeem us, cost everything. The blood of the only begotten Son of God, the Savior, the one born in Bethlehem, the one whose birth we celebrate. Let Boaz point you to Jesus Christ, our true kinsman redeemer. He, Jesus, is the point of Christmas. He is the one waiting to receive you, and he will write you into the family tree of Jesus. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for your word. Old and New Testament. We thank you, O oh God, for this little glimpse of the glory of your gospel we see in Ruth. We thank you for the foreshadowing of that little baby Obed born in Bethlehem all those years ago that points us to the true and better and the coming king, the little Lord Jesus born in Bethlehem. And we thank you, O oh Lord, that that baby is the Savior of the world and that all who put their faith and trust in him will know and experience that redemption, that buying back from sin's dark domain. You have paid the ultimate price to buy us back. I pray if anyone doesn't know you, today would be the day they open their heart to you. They ask for that redemption. They come to you, Lord. You will not reject them. You will not mock them. You will not send them away. You will receive them. And I pray for those who do know you, they would do everything in their power to perpetuate that legacy of faith to the next generation. And we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.